Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. My next guest is M. Todd Bennett, and we will be discussing his book, Neither Confirm Nor Deny, How the Glomar Mission Shielded the CIA from Transparency, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2022. M. Todd Bennett is Associate Press Professor of History at East Carolina University. He is the author of One World Big Screen, Hollywood, the Allies, and World War II that was published in 2012. Bennett was formerly a historian at the U.S. Department of State. There, he edited the Foreign Relations of the United States volume that included declassified records documenting the Glomar incident. M. Todd Bennett, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Yes, we always like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind writing this book? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, today, I'm merely a history professor at East Carolina University. Um, but in my previous professional life, I was a historian at the U.S. Department of State. And my job there was to compile the Foreign Relations of the United States series, which is the official documentary record of U.S. foreign policy. And it's it's a warts and all approach because the series is backed by a law that requires it to tell a, a complete, thorough, and accurate um, account of U.S. foreign policy. So that gives the historians at the State Department access to um, materials that may or may not have been declassified yet. And so in this case, this book uh, really has its origins in that experience. So as part of compiling of foreign relations volume on national security policy from 1973 to 1976, um, I was able to get access to materials, CIA materials that were then located and uh, mostly still are in the agency's uh, archives, which are not yet open to the public, uh, documenting the mission of the Glomar Explorer, um, which was this mission to recover a sunken Soviet submarine from uh, that sank in 1968, and the recovery mission took place in the mid-1970s. Um, but, of course, long story short, those documents uh, were still classified at the time that I found them. They were eventually included in a foreign relations volume and declassified in 2014. Uh, and at that point, I had since left federal service and was back to academia. But once those documents were officially declassified in 2014, at that point, I knew I had a book um, because uh, I had some special uh, insights. Again, the book is based on nothing but publicly available materials. But I had some special insight into the project, having done that research. Uh, and the documents that were published in that foreign relations volume are ones that are available nowhere else. Um, because they include records of the 40 committee, which was at that time the National Security Council committee in the White House that was responsible for reviewing uh, important or sensitive uh, clandestine operations. 
Now, you talked a lot about like some of the sources that you were able to talk about. Uh, now, is there any sources that are still kind of classified uh, that we know of uh, about this uh, area, this mission? Yeah, that's also a great question. Yeah, I mean, so in, in putting together the book, you're... Uh, it, that was part of the challenge, right, is you're dealing with at least two entities here that are super secretive, the CIA, um, but also uh, Howard Hughes, uh, at that time, the arguably the world's most famous recluse, who was chosen to front the mission because he was secretive. Um, and those are private records, which for the most part still aren't available today. Um, and so it was a real challenge to do the book. But I had the benefit of that foreign relations volume that I mentioned. Uh, a veteran of the project had published his memoirs uh, in around 2012 or so. And also in 2010, the uh, the, aid six, the CIA did declassify, um, as a result of, of a FOIA request, an official history of the operation. So those all of those materials gave me a good base. And then I was able to supplement it. With research in congressional records, um, really found a fantastic, unexpected source in the records of two journalists who uh, did an outstanding biography of Howard Hughes published several years later. Um, the, the journalists were James Bartlett and Donald Steele, who were Pulitzer Prize winning journalists for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And in addition to being good journalists, they were fantastic record keepers, and, <laughs> and their records still existed. American University in Washington, D.C., and they were really revealing. So lots of records I was able and sources to supplement them with, including interviews with uh, veterans of the project, which really gave me some insight I wouldn't ordinarily have. But to, in response to your question, yeah, there are a lot of materials that remain officially classified. How many? I don't I can't say for sure. But another set of records that was helpful um, and provided a different accounting of this were legal records that documented the agency's efforts to keep certain aspects of this operation and other secret. And we may want to talk about some of that later. But according to those case files, the last of which of those cases were settled in the early 1980s. So with that qualifier and things have been many things declassified since, according to that accounting, again, which is a little old, a certain number of files had been declassified at that point, and as I say, many more would be in the coming years, but they were just a drop in the bucket. And uh, I believe at that point there were something like 128,000 uh, records that still remain classified. So we know a lot, but it's just a drop in the bucket. And many of those files will never be declassified because they document um, an intelligence operation, which are not subject for the most part uh, to declassification action. Yes, that's the great exciting paradox of doing mm -hmm. intelligence history is you got all this you got all this potential material, but whether or not you can access or whether or not you can publicly uh, publish about it, that's always the challenge uh, of doing this. It is, and uh, I I don't always quote Don Rumsfeld, but but in this case the the there's always the things that you don't know, the known unknowns, right? And you know that you don't know them. And that is that is a challenge when writing intelligence history because you always know there are things that you do not know and never will know for sure. Yes. And 
kind of segue into uh, my next question, because this uh, Glomar mission, it occurred mm. within the context of the Cold War, uh, mm. just after what we com- commonly consider the height of it with uh, the Berlin standoff and the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 60s. This is towards the end of the 60s, early 70s, and you call this almost the end of the golden age of U.S. Uh, intelligence agencies. Can you explain, like, what was the status of of uh, the CIA and U.S. intelligence agencies at this time in the late 60s, at the end of its golden age, as you describe it? Yeah, sure, happy to. And I think uh, the timeline is really important here. So the actual mission to uh, recover the remains of this sunken Soviet submarine, that happened in the mid-1970s. But this operation had its origins in 1968, uh, which was the year that uh, uh, U.S. intelligence discovered that a Soviet submarine had suffered some kind of an accident um, or uh, incident and and sunk in the Pacific Ocean, the North Central Pacific. And at, at that point, the operation, once they know they can uh, locate the submarine, really has its origins in 1968. And as you say, that's at the very tail end. Um, the Cold War is still going. It's at the tail end of what in many intelligence professionals themselves recalled as a golden age for U.S. intelligence, the central agency in particular, in large part determined by the fact that the community as a whole, the agency in particular, still operated um, virtually in total secrecy. Yes, there had been disclosures um, in the 1960s, the Ramparts disclosures and others, but compared to what would happen later, it operated in, in virtual total secrecy. And this gave the community a great deal of flexibility in terms of uh, the uh, missions that it chose to uh, pursue, knowing that the chances were they would not be subject to uh, congressional public or other media disclosure. So they kind of operated with a kind of de facto immunity, too, from any type Mm -hmm. of prosecution for what they were doing, because, of course, they were doing it for national security purposes, and the Soviet Union was such a existential threat to the United States and its allies. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Uh, and this, I, th- I think one way to for your listeners to think about it is in terms of congressional oversight. Today, uh, there's certainly even questioned whether how vigorous con- congressional oversight is. And those are open questions. But in 1968, there was virtually no congressional oversight whatsoever. Um, in large part because what con- there were no standing intelligence committees. Rather, there were simply some uh, subcommittees of standing uh, committees, the Armed Services Committee and the the Appropriations Committees in both the Senate and the House that operated under the thumb of chairmen, uh, longstanding chairmen who enjoyed seniority, most of whom were Southern Democrats, uh, headed by Richard Russell, the senator from Georgia, uh, a notorious figure today because of his opposition to civil rights legislation, uh, but important to the national security aspect because he put a high priority on um, the U.S. intelligence services. He was a Cold Warrior fighting the Cold War, and in his mind, they needed total, um, a total immunity, as you say, uh, in order to, to pursue that war uh, vigorously. And so yep. did not really question CIA action. Excuse me. Yeah. No, what you just said kind of reminds me how there was almost a parallel with the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover Mm -hmm. at this 
time. So, and that's more counterintelligence and internal law enforcement, but that's also another element of mm -hmm. this intelligence apparatus that's going on in this period of the cold war. So, so yeah, it wasn't just the CIA. It was also the FBI and even law enforcement uh, to a certain extent operating with this immunity. Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, many of the, the disclosures that would happen in the mid 1970s, including 1975, the year of so-called year of intelligence, which was uh, begun by uh, disclosure in the New York Times by Seymour Hirsch of, um, as you say, uh, the U.S. intelligence community's um, domestic spying operation of, of anti-Vietnam War protesters and other groups and civil rights groups. Uh, the disclosure of that longstanding effort, um, and later in 1975, the revelation that the CIA and other in, uh, agencies had been involved in attempts to assassinate foreign leaders, um, involved in, in other uh, aspects. All of those disclosures happened later in 1975. Um, none of those things, or very few of them, were public knowledge when this operation began in, in 1968. And so one way to think of it, what, immunity is one way, um, but, but it's also important, I think, that, that immunity, as you say, gave, we'll say the CIA in particular, it really didn't put any limits on imagination. And that's a key theme, I think, in this, in this particular um, mission was the imagination to think that something that had never been done before could be done. And, and I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact of how impressive that is from a technical standpoint. You know, this submarine uh, was located three miles below the water surface, over 16,000 feet below the water surface at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. It weighed, uh, the, a waterlogged submarine weighed um, a 4 million pounds, according to the best possible estimate. Nothing like that, raising an object from such great depth of such weight, had ever been attempted before. And the fact that the CIA thought it was possible really is a testament to the imagination of the agency. And the fact they were able to attempt it and were partially successful in doing so really is quite an amazing story. But at what cost uh, is the question? And that was that... It, wasn't a question at the time that many U.S. officials uh, raised. Uh, there was a great deal of opposition to this mission, and it's still an open question today. Now, with uh, the Soviet submarine K-129, do we know for certain what happened to it that caused it to sink? Uh, I know perhaps you would have to look into Soviet archives, which are, for more reason than one, a little less accessible now. But do we know for certain what happened to the submarine that caused it to sink? No. The short answer is no. There are, to go back to our earlier uh, portion of our earlier conversation, there are some things that we don't know, even today, 50 years later. And I, I, I feel confident that um, I've had as much visibility of, of the public records as, as anybody at this stage. Um, and there are some things that we still don't know. And that's one of them is exactly what happened uh, to the K-129 that caused it to sink. That is one subtopic um, that documentation about which has still not been declassified. We still don't know. Um, some claim um, I would 
there's are uh, theories out there that that it, this that this K129 suffered a collision with another ship, possibly an American ship or submarine, that caused it caused damage, that caused it to sink. Um, that's a minority view. Uh, most believe that it suffered some kind of internal um, incident uh, and it suffered an accidental explosion. Exactly what was the nature of that? There's speculation, informed speculation, but there's not a definitive answer to that. Now, what intelligence value did K-129 have for the CIA? Why did they go through all this uh, trouble just to pick up this one uh, submarine? Did they have intelligence already on how Soviet submarines were designed and operated? Yeah, that's a great question, and 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 one that resulted in considerable debate within the U.S. government. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier there was opposition to um, the mission uh, more as time went on, and it really had to do with the intelligence value. Um, the submarine, the hull of the submarine itself, in the in the eyes of the U.S. Navy, had relatively little value. Uh, that was in part because the submarine, again, sank in 1968, but it was, even at that point, uh, a vented submarine. It had been launched in the late 1950s and critically was a diesel-powered submarine that had been superseded, even at that stage, by other nuclear-powered submarines. And the, the value of the submarine itself decreased over time. As I said, it sank in 68. The mission to retrieve it really had its origins in 68, but to build all the hardware necessary to do this incredible job took a lot of time. So the actual retrieval mission didn't occur until 1974, and by that point, the submarine itself had even less value, right? So the target has less value as time went on. Now you're dealing with a uh, submarine that was launched almost a generation, a full generation earlier, and was a relic in the view of many. But one thing that remained true throughout the mission, and this is one of the things that we do know from declassified records, is that, and had been secret before, is the intelligence value, um, the high value that U.S. officials placed on it, which had almost was entirely to do with the cryptographic materials that were thought to be aboard the sub. And so recovering the sale of the submarine, the brains of the sub were crucial because they were thought to house not just um, not just a uh, code machine, but information that would uh, tell U.S. officials how those work to enable them to perhaps break and uh, Soviet code and read Soviet naval traffic. Yes, uh, that reminds me, this is a little bit earlier in the Cold War in the late 40s, but I remember how difficult it was to break the what became known as the Venona documents, but eventually they did, but it took them a lot of time. So I, I'm kind of thinking maybe that experience for some of them were was like, well, we have a golden opportunity to get this. So we don't have to go through that trouble again with the like we had with the Venona documents. Uh, yeah, you see any? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I and I, I apologize for interrupting. I I don't I didn't see a direct I, analogy, a direct link to that. I think that's a fair question, um, but there was certainly a, a high level, high, high value placed in the opportunity to read the Soviet Soviets' mail, so to speak. Uh, this had never been accomplished before. And to kind of go back to the question, the U.S. had never recovered uh, a Soviet submarine, as far as we know. 
Um, and that had some, there were some things that knowledgeable people, some lessons they could learn from that, but they certainly, had, certainly hadn't recovered a Soviet code machine. And the opportunity to do that was really too good to pass up. So lots of questions raised about the intelligence value and the cost of the mission. But from the perspective of Richard Helms, um, the uh, director of central intelligence at the time, another high level official, this was a chance that you really couldn't pass up. This is what this is your job. Your job is to recover, <laughs> um, the, to to collect intelligence, military grade intelligence regarding the capabilities of your foremost adversary, the Soviet Union, and the opportunity to recover a submarine. That's one thing, but it's code machine and documents showing how that machine works. If there was any chance whatsoever, you really couldn't pass that that up, um, and that that would give you perhaps an opportunity uh, to win uh, the kind of underwater Cold War, which is something that we doesn't get a lot of press, but this but took place nonetheless, remains very secretive today. But this contest that took place um, below the world's oceans between the Soviet Navy and the American navies uh, was very hotly contested. And um, there was a belief that this operation could help the U.S. Um, when that when that underwater cold war and i should mention that there were debates about the intelligence hall uh, of the the value of the k129 but from the very beginning high level u.s intelligence officials placed what highest priority on this target because it was believed that the sub contained unique intelligence value that is intelligence that was available nowhere else from no other source so how did this idea for the mission originate? Was there a particular person or a committee within the CIA that came up with this idea and then they sent it to the higher-ups and say, hey, this is our proposal? And then the higher-ups were like, oh, this sounds great and let's do this. How did this originate? Yeah, th that's interesting as well. The The idea, the shortest answer possible, it originated with the agency's directorate for Science and, Te and Technology, DS&T, um, known to many, popularly known as the home to the Wizards of Langley, um, the, the scientists, uh, aerospace technicians that had helped pioneer some of the greatest technological successes in the history of the U.S. intelligence community. It helped develop the high-altitude uh, U-2 spy, spy plane, for example. It's... Um, its successor, the SR-71 Blackbird, and so forth. So the people in DS&T had the highest possible reputation in the U.S. intelligence community for basically doing um, projects thought to be technologically impossible, and not just doing them, but doing them on time, on budget, and on spec, right? So they carried tremendous prestige, DS&T did, and it was DS&T, that uh, developed this proposal and long story short, um, brought it to uh, Richard Helms eventually for approval. Dates or it's difficult to find an exact date even today, but the, the gestational period was between 1968 and um, say mid-1970 when DS&T had a, a proposal on Richard Helms's desk. Now, earlier in the interview you mentioned that there was actually opposition to this mission and you talk a lot about how the cia and the u.s navy 
really differed in their assessment of how feasible this was. Can you explain this uh, contrast between the CIA and the Navy? Yeah, happy to do so. That's an interesting part of the story for sure. So just to back up a step, it was the U.S. Navy that originally had um, ownership, for lack of a better word, of this proposal. Um, uh, uh, U.S. intelligence was able to locate the sub. Then the question was, uh, should we raise it? And if so, how? Well, originally, the U.S. Navy was, was tasked with that question. And that made sense because it was naval intelligence, which had the expertise in this area. And for one thing, as I mentioned earlier, um, the Navy didn't think that the submarine itself had all that much value. And so their approach was not to try to uh, attempt the recovery of the entire submarine. They didn't think it was worth it. They did, however, realize and understand that the uh, code machine and other cryptographic materials, that's what had value. And there was also thought to be at least one um, one submarine-launched ballistic missile and a nuclear warhead aboard the ship. And, and those, two were valuable items. So the Navy's idea was to essentially go down with um, many submersibles, um, underwater drones, uh, un unmanned other underwater vehicles, as we would call them today, uh, which were in their infancy at that point. And to take underwater, these under, unmanned underwater vehicles down and to essentially um, recover those particular items and leave the hull of the submarine on the seafloor. And when the CIA came back with their proposal to raise um, a portion of the ship to clarify when the submarine sank, it had broken into bits. And the agency proposed to recover a large portion of the submarine, the most valuable portion of the submarine, to include the sail, um, as I mentioned earlier. But the Navy thought, long story short, that was that it was physically impossible to do so, to recover such a heavy um, object from such great depth over three miles. And uh, the U.S. Navy was uh, heavily opposed to the operation for that reason, and to be honest, probably also for territorial reasons, because um, the Navy recognized that if the CIA take, took leadership of this recovery effort, that they would receive the funding, that they would be in charge of it, and that they would likely then take leadership of the entire underwater um, intelligence collection effort, um, which was akin to the CIA's kind of competition with the Air Force for control of the nation's satellite, um, satellites. Now, how was this operation planned? What were kind of the stages of planning that went involved? Because also this took several years to plan. Am I correct? It, it, you are correct. And as I say, it took, this was uh, technically a very sophisticated operation. It took years to develop the hardware to do the job. Subsinks in 1968, U.S. intelligence discovers the location of the submarine. Then it's a multi-year effort to develop that hardware. So um, from 68 to 1970, it's kind of, can we do it? Developing the blueprint. The blueprint is approved in 1970 or so. Then from that point on, it's writing contracts um, for development of that hardware, building the ship to begin with, which operates as a, a surface platform, um, 
from which to oversimplify things uh, was equipped with really a claw, <laughs> uh, technically called a capture vehicle, but, but you and I would kind of think of it as a claw, kind of like one would see at an arcade, a toy that one takes to recover toys and things like that. But this was a claw that could descend three miles um, to, to grab and retrieve that submarine. So you've got the ship, the development and construction of that, the, the capture vehicle with a claw, that's a separate piece. Um, and so putting all that together, uh, took years uh, of effort. Now, how much funding uh, was required for this mission? Because obviously this is an audacious plan and uh, audacious plans usually are not cheap. Yeah, audacious is a great word and it, audacious it was and cheap it was not. Funding grew over time. Uh, I think that's the short answer. So at the beginning stages, although... Um, Agency officials, I'm sure, did their best to cost out the, the operation. Uh, it was even more complicated than um, engineers and, and scientists and technicians expected it to be. So I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but the early estimates were several hundred million dollars. But the cost went up over time. Uh, increased by a significant amount because, it, as I say, it, just re it required more and more money. How much it at the end of the day? How much did it cost? That too is officially classified. However, um, there have been some estimates and some pretty reliable estimates. I think uh, in 1975, when the operation was suffered an unauthorized disclosure in the press, um, Jack Anderson. A, a columnist at the time pegged uh, the operation's total cost, and this was based on his sources, which and many of whom were good sources, uh, at $350 million, um, which, and that's in 1975 money. And if that's true, then that makes it one of the most expensive operations, uh, known operations in U.S. intelligence history. So long story short, it was expensive to begin with, but the price tag grew over time as it became more complex. And we, we can document that. We don't know the exact figure, but we can estimate the cost growth. We do know the cost growth because that information has been declassified. So if you look at the records, U.S. officials talk about this increase, uh, the growth over time, 66% cost growth from one point to another. And to go back to our previous conversation, that stoked opposition to the plan because um, in part because the change in the government's the government's balance sheet over time 1968 and 1974 are very different time periods in terms of the u.s economy um, you've got a, an oil shock that happens in 1973 the government is running um, a, de a deficit at that point um, for the first time in a generation. And so there's growing opposition within U.S. government circles um, to this operation based on cost. But also, as time went on, the intelligence value of the target decreased. And this wasn't, there was the argument, well, if you took, if you stop this program, you could fund, uh, fund social programs. That was not really the argument that a lot of U.S. officials made. The officials that were opposed said, look, we only have so much intelligence budget. We could take this same money 
and to apply it to another program, oftentimes their own, <laughs> if I'm being honest. And that would that would be a more profitable use of our limited intelligence dollars. So there was growing opposition over time. And lastly, uh, from a diplomatic perspective, and of course, if you ask former intelligence officials, say, yeah, 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 it's the State Department. They always complain. And that may be true. But in this case, there was opposition within the State Department from the very beginning because there was a concern that if this operation were discovered, that there would be a geopolitical uh, price to pay in large part because one thing we haven't talked about is that the the submarine, the K-129, was effectively an underwater tomb uh, containing the remains of many of the dozens of Soviet submariners who were aboard the ship. So if this operation were discovered, uh, the Soviets could plausibly um, make a public case against it that could uh, that there were some there were some political aspects that needed to be considered. That always brings up a point I've often made in regards to intelligence history is that intelligence does not operate in a vacuum. So mm-hmm. the CIA, its operations here, but it has to take into consideration other factors, including just the geopolitical and diplomatic uh, aspects that you just uh, mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great point. And just to get on my soapbox for a moment, I think that the diplomatic aspects of intelligence operate, and I can only speak to U.S. intelligence operations, that's my kind of area of specialty, but the diplomatic aspects, the diplomatic history of U.S. intelligence, I think that's a really understudied field um, because it matters. And it comes up again and again in uh, in these issues, and yet we know relatively little about it. Um, the, The number of studies that explore the foreign relations aspects of intelligence operations is is few in number, and we we seldom do we get a good sense of kind of the diplomatic aspects of them. And so I, I would just uh, call on my colleagues to um, uh, to kind of tackle that, um, but because as you say, it's important and it comes up again and again and again. Now. At the beginning of our conversation, we kind of mentioned that this is the tail end of the golden age of espionage, where the CIA kind of, as uh, we discussed earlier, it kind of operated with a de facto immunity. But then as we move from the late 60s into the 70s, it starts to come under greater public scrutiny. So in this context of the shift towards greater scrutiny of the intelligence agencies, how was secrecy? How was uh, secrecy uh, maintained about this mission? Because obviously, of course, as you just mentioned, uh, had word gotten out about this mission, there'd be a lot of blowback, both within the United States, but also, you know, from the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc, uh, especially. Yeah, that's really, really important. As I say, time matters always, but and with this, with this topic in particular, and. And let me just, I guess, just say at this point, there have been other there are other books out there on this operation and some outstanding books. Um, the book that will probably stand the test of time is the best book on Glomar from a technical aspect is by David Sharp, his a veteran of the project who published his memoirs in 2012 um, with Kansas University Press. He's an engineer by training. 
his account from a technical aspect of how exactly the CIA did this technically is outstanding. It's unparalleled. Um, and there are other works out there. What my book, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I can't write that book. I'm not qualified. I'm a diplomatic historian. So what I am qualified, and so I'm more qualified to write on that topic. And that's what the book is. It's a foreign relations history of the Glomar operation, but one that particularly focuses on the topic you raised, which is secrecy. And so the book, the story of the Glomar Explorer, is an amazing technical story. And we've touched on that. But in my mind, it's also a story, an equally or even more important story about government secrecy and the ability or lack thereof of the U.S. government to um, protect national secrets. So long story short, that the, the ability of the U.S. government to do so really changed over time from 1968 to 1975, which is um, the timeline here. Over time, um, to oversimplify things, the, at least some some U.S. intelligence officials feel like by the tail end of this operation, 1974 or 75, that they're operating in well, relative a relative fishbowl that they cannot, they they no longer can act with impunity. Their actions um, are sometimes disclosed in the press or in Congress. Um, there are efforts to to hold the U.S. intelligence community to account. And so from the perspective of, of officials, this makes it much, much more difficult uh, to do the things that must be done uh, from an intelligence standpoint, to collect intelligence, to gather intelligence uh, during the Cold War and to win the Cold War. So um, things really do change. And this really comes to a head, as I say, the actual effort to retrieve the submarine took place in 1974. And uh, without giving uh, too much away at this point in the conversation, U.S. officials are very, very much aware that the context has changed. If you look at the, the minutes of the 40, committee meet, the 40 committee meetings, and again, the 40 committee is the high-level NSC council uh, committee that reviews uh, sensitive intelligence operations, they, you know, giving final approval to this mission in 1974 and then again in 1975 are very cognizant of the fact that things have changed. And the ability to keep this mission secret, um, that there's a shelf life to that all of a sudden. And um, they're aware of that. And secrecy was impo always important. I'll just end with this, but particularly important in this case and honestly, the ability to keep the operation secret is pretty amazing when you consider that the ship itself, just dealing with that, the ship itself, which was necessary, the building block of the entire operation, was over 600, over 600 feet long. And, and so wide, its beam was so wide, it couldn't pass through the Panama Canal. That's how big this thing was. And remember, it operated out in the open. It existed in space where everybody could see it for seven years. And so the Glomar Explorer, the ship essentially hid in plain sight, and it had to. Otherwise, um, the mission wouldn't have been a secret and the Soviets would have discovered it. So a secrecy was, in, was crucial and the ability to keep the mission secret diminished quickly over time. And that had to do with things that um, 
had nothing to do with the Glomar Explorer, but had to do with um, a reaction to water to Vietnam, to Watergate, and so forth. Yes, we'll get into Watergate uh, later on, because that plays a role in this story as well. Now, you mentioned Howard Hughes earlier mm-hmm. in the uh, conversation. Now, what was his significance to the Glomar uh, mission? Why bring in Howard Hughes, of all people? Yeah, uh, Hughes may or may not be a name that's familiar today, but at this time, Howard Hughes was... Um, reputed to be the richest living American and and one of the richest um, humans alive. And uh, Hughes, an interesting figure in brief, a native Texan uh, who inherited his father's uh, oil drill bit uh, fortune and then moved to Los Angeles to become uh, famous as a Hollywood movie mogul, uh, uh, an aviator, a test pilot, and also um, a playboy, for lack of a better word. And uh, but he was also, as as he aged, very reclusive. And so, when uh, the CIA approached him, and I'll get to what they did in 1970, uh, Hughes was uh, alive and living atop the the uh, Desert Inn in Las Vegas in a penthouse atop a casino he owned there, the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. So he was, at this point, the world's most famous recluse, very, very secretive um, and also and eccentric. And that's exactly what the CIA chose him. Uh, he was rich, he was secretive, and he was eccentric. That's simply put. Um, this was as uh, one of Richard Helms's as Richard Helms himself said when he reviewed the uh, proposal in 1969, 1970, this is crazy. The idea we're going to recover a Soviet submarine three miles down with a giant ship and a claw, and we're going to do it in league with Howard Hughes. This is a crazy operation. Who's going to believe we can do this? Well, that's exactly why the agency chooses Hughes the front man, because he's secretive, he's eccentric. And if anybody in the world, the thinking went, what would would undertake, would bankroll a crazy scheme to recover, um, to do deep sea work, it would be Howard Hughes. And the cover story I should mention at this point that the agency developed was to cover the fact that there was this enormous ship was, of course, they couldn't say that they were going to recover a submarine. The public explanation was that it was developed and owned by Hughes to do deep sea mining work. Um, an industry that hardly existed at the time, which was crucial because that meant that nobody had, because this industry was in its infancy, nobody had a yardstick by which to measure whether the um, technique developed by the Hughes Glomar Explorer was credible or not. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Howard Hughes is not as well known. Probably most people uh, nowadays, they probably recognize him from the film The Aviator with Leonardo DiCaprio. And the fact that he was like one of the possibly the richest American, it kind of made me think of the discussion we had about the funding. So this was a way to get around that issue maybe for the CIA, uh, if we have any evidence of that. But it makes sense uh, in that context. Yeah, and Hughes was uh, Hughes was very very secretive. That was one of the things that recommended him for the project. He had done um, he'd been a contractor for the U.S. government for years on various different capacities, um, and so he was a known quantity. And as I say, very very secretive. Um, There's a great great deal. You know, he offered he essentially offered a black box. 
for um, the agency to to work with to move funding around. I should mention at this point that another thing that recommended him was that uh, his firms were privately owned. There were no securities and exchange commission reports to be filed. Um, There were no other stakeholders to answer to. It was Hughes. Hughes alone owned his companies. They were private. He could do anything he wanted with his money and nobody, there were no books um, that anybody would see. And so he offered a black box or to move money around. And um, and he was very effective at that. And even today, one of your, your first questions was, well, what what records did you find or not find? Well, there's there's still two two major sets of records that I didn't get access to. One, so former former Soviet records. Um, that book is remains to be written. And Hughes's records. There's some stuff available at UNLV in Las Vegas. Um, but his corporate records, off limits, if they exist. So this is almost an early example of the CIA outsourcing intelligence to private firms in a way, which has kind of come into light uh, more recently, but it's almost, this is like a precursor to that. I think that's a great point. It's, at some level, this is a book about outsourcing, and that's one of the subtopics. Um, but it's very, very difficult to document, at least at least in this case. Now, we also discussed how this operation isn't operating in a vacuum. There's a political, both internal and uh, global political. Now, for the for right now in the American context, what did President Nixon and Henry Kissinger think about this? Because this is during the presidency of Richard Nixon that this operation was planned and undertook. Uh, did Richard Nixon know about this operation and what did he think of it? That's a complicated, complicated issue. Um, but yes, the, the, the proposal was developed during the Nixon administration. What did Nixon know and when did he know it? <laughs> I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. Um, we, we still don't have a full answer to that um, in part for declassification for reasons. All we really know is that Kissinger uh, sent a, a message to the to the agency, saying that the president had approved, and that he was impressed with the agency's level of imagination that had that had displayed in coming up with this. So we're left to kind of piece together um, a lot of from other sources. Um, and what we, what we've been able to discover is that there was a great deal of concern, as I say, within, um, the Nixon administration, full stop to include the state department, to include the Pentagon about this for mainly for foreign relations reasons. And that had to do oddly enough with, with the development of detente. And yes, I realized there were um, kind of the origins of detente in the Johnson administration, but a policy normally associated uh, with the Nixon administration, and one that the president and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, had personal and political stakes in. This was their policy, um, lowering tensions with the Soviets for reasons X, Y, and Z. And as I say, there was a concern. Within, within the administration as a whole, that if the Soviets were to discover this operation, that it might well jeopardize detente. And so one would think that Nixon and Kissinger would be opposed to the operation, but turns out they weren't. And in large part, that's because although Kissinger and Nixon uh, were quite skeptical of the CIA, 
Nixon in particular, um, under Richard Helms, Nixon distrusted, personally distrusted the CIA, um, regarded it as a um, the home of kind of Ivy League intellectuals who were opposed to him, a, an outsider in his mind. Um, and, and these were, he believed, a hotbed of Democrats, liberal Democrats, and he a Republican. So he distrusted the CIA. Kissinger also distrusted the CIA for different reasons. He often clashed with the CIA over, um, over analysis, believed that CIA analysts over oftentimes misinterpreted the situation. But they both enjoyed operating in secret. Um, both used the, the CIA to achieve national uh, interest clandestinely. And um, in this case, Kissinger, uh, of course, as we all know, both Nixon and Kissinger had a, had a strong penchant for conducting foreign relations in secrecy as well. And, and Kissinger believed, and this we do know, that, that if Project Azorian, as it was then called, this effort to recover a Soviet sub, if it were recovered, if, if it were disclosed, that he believed, and with good reason, that it would not jeopardize detente, um, and largely because he was he had a back channel with Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin, in which they discussed this very issue early on in their relationship. They both recognized early on that accusations of espionage that would be one thing that could possibly disrupt detente, and they agreed. And this is documented early on that if accusations of espionage occurred, that they would talk about it amongst themselves and that they would do their best to downplay those accusations. And Kissinger had confidence that that would be the case um, if Project Azorian were disclosed. And basically, that's exactly what happened. He was right. Yes. Also part of this uh, Cold War context of detente and uh, whatnot uh, there was also the drawdown from Vietnam, where we were essentially fighting a Soviet ally in the Viet Cong and uh, North uh, uh, Vietnam. And then also, I think this is also around the time that we were also trying to open up to China and try to make the split between China and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So this, of course, is part of the wider context of the Glomar mission, which kind of explains like why it was handled the way that it that it did. Uh, do you have any further thoughts on like how the Cold War uh, context affected the Glomar mission? Well, yeah, I, I do. Cold War in defined as now kind of the um, middle, moving into the late portion portions of the Cold War. Cold War is the Nixon administration defined it, which is competition, continuing competition for sure, um, but kind of managed competition. And I guess the la last thing I would say on it was is that from that perspective is when the operation was disclosed prematurely in 1975. Um, both sides had an interest in downplaying it to keep detente moving. And there was a recognition too, and I, I, I will say this in response to your, your good question, is there was also a recognition on both sides, and this had only tangentially related to politics, was that spying is what great powers do. <laughs> It's what they did. It's what they do. 
Um, there are satellites in the air. There are humans operating um, on land. And there are submarines that collect intelligence below water. And this is what great powers do. And the Americans did it, and the Soviets did it, and both sides realized that. But the key from the Nixon administration's face perspective, and I'm talking Nixon and Kissinger in particular, was to allow your opponent the ability to save face, give them an out. And, and that, was the, uh, that was the approach here from a and that the Cold War soldiered on, and but the key was to not get involved in a tit for tat. Now there was some of that for sure, um, but um, the Cold War soldiered on, and that's part of uh, part of the explanation as to how why this operation was approved in the first place, and how it was resolved when it was publicly publicly disclosed. Yes, uh, in fact, around the same time, the Soviets had their major spy, John Walker. Uh, in the U.S. Navy, I believe he was giving away American naval codes to the so to the Soviets. So there was this back and forth uh, on both sides. Yeah, for sure. That and just a thing about Walker. That's interesting. Um, the Soviets, you know, one question is, what did the Soviets know, and when did they know it? The answer to that is unclear, in, in large part because we, at least I do not have access to Soviet intelligence records um, and, and unlikely to do so in a foreseeable future. So that, that, that chapter remains to be written, but we know they knew, we know that they knew more than American officials thought they did uh, with what limited information is available. And that raised the question, um, what did Walker tell the Soviets, if anything, the Soviet handlers about this super secret American operation to recover a sub submarine. And it, so it looks like, and I, I'm a little hesitant to say this, you, you don't know what you don't know, but from all appearances, it appear, it seems that Walker, the, the operation was walled off from Walker um, because of uh, compartmentalization, but he wasn't read into the program. Um, and so he didn't, I'm, I'm, I want to qualify this by it, it appears that he did not know about the operation and did not tip off the Soviets. But I, that's that is, it seems that way now. Maybe we'll know more in a generation. I don't know. So you can neither affirm nor uh, deny, confirm I, or deny. <laughs> yeah, and I'm 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 not I'm I, I'm not trying to give a sense that I know. I don't. I really don't. But there's. Uh, you always have to be mindful of what you what you don't know and and cover yourself, I guess. Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, it's you're going off of what's the available information oh, right, right now. Now, uh, getting back to available information, this was also the time of Watergate, the scandal that really kind of brought uh, out not only some of the uh, doings of the Nixon administration, but just what also kind of helps open this floodgate about public scrutiny towards the intelligence agencies and what impact did Watergate have on the Glomar mission? Is this where it starts information starts flooding out more about the operation to the public? Yeah. Uh, it has a tremendous impact. And again, it's the, it's the, the timelines match up. So the, the Watergate scandal was metastasizing in um, 1973 and 1974, which is precisely the moment 
when the um, ship and the other hardware needed to recover the Soviet sub is is uh, is being finalized, is uh, undergoing final testing, and that the National Security Council is signing off on giving final approval um, to the mission. So while they're doing that, uh, the Watergate investigation is unfolding. And so one of the super interesting things, if you go back and look at the minutes of the 40 committee deliberations, uh, which is so rare to have that insight, those are normally very secretive records, you see that uh, the members of the 40 committee are talking about that very point that, um, and to kind of put a, a, a key moment on it, the ship itself sails in the summer of 1974. Nixon, of course, is on the verge of retiring, in or retiring of resigning in 1974, but he hasn't done that yet. And it's not quite clear when the final proposal lands on the 40 committee's um, review list, how Watergate will play itself out. But what they did know is that the um, the Senate hearings um, into Watergate were kind of starting to reach a climax, that more and more information was becoming known. And um, that one of the one of the people that were kind of tangentially related, one of the players in, in both of these dramas, Watergate and Glomar, um, that that person's relationship to the CIA and to Hughes and to Nixon um, that that person's identity and um, their role was becoming um, part of the public record. And so NSC officials were worried um, that the cover might be blown. And curiously enough, that became all the more rationale to move forward. Because uh, by this point, you've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in, in sunk costs, right? Um, and it's I think a good kind of analogy is it's kind of almost like the atomic bomb project. And I know that's imperfect in a lot of ways, but you've already sunk all this money into it. There's a bureaucratic inertia. You developed a project to use it. And so there's almost a foregone conclusion that you will approve the operation by the time that the 40 committee is back going through its papers in the Situation Room in the White House. The Glomar Explorer is sitting at port in Long Beach. So it would take kind of a real active uh, bureaucratic courage um, to, to, dis, to, um, to decline the operation. But one argument to moving forward is, look, we don't know how much longer we can hold this. Uh, we're worried that the cover will be blown. So if we're going to do it, we better do it now. So how did the mission, the actual mission unfold once it was finally launched? Uh, and perhaps maybe you could just kind of summarize like the highlights yeah. of the mission rather than like the minute details. I'll, I'll do my best. Yeah. So the, the mission's approved. The Glomar Explorer uh, leaves its uh, port in Long Beach, California in, in June of, excuse me, early July. Excuse, yeah, no, that's right. Mid-June, 1974. Takes a while to sail to the recovery site. It arrives there um, and begins operations. Don't have the exact timeline in front of me, but late July, August, 1974. That's what we're dealing with. Meanwhile, the Watergate drama is playing out in Washington. As the ship the explorer is at the uh, target site interestingly enough not one but two 
uh, Soviet ships appear uh, there at that exact point while the Glomar operation is carrying out its operations, which and those ships begin to kind of harass the explorer to, to circle it. There's a helicopter involved trying to figure out what this ship is and what the heck it's doing here, um, which raises the question in the minds of um, intelligence officials who were aboard the ship, and there were some. Does, did the Soviets know what we're doing? If so, have they been tipped? And what if? And what are their intentions here? Um, but long story short. Um, while those Soviet ships are circling above on the on a water the water's surface, the claw is descending, uh, picks up the submarine and begins to retrieve it um, uh, and to raise it. And about halfway up, something occurs, and the submarine um, the, the claw fails, and part of the submarine falls back to the ocean's surface. And the agency was able to recover a portion uh, of the submarine to haul that into the Glomar Explorer as well. And after some time, the explorer then leaves the scene and to um, examine what it has recovered. Now, one issue that we mentioned earlier was the remains of the crew members, the Soviet crew members of K-129. Were any of the bodies recovered and what happened to them? Yeah, uh, some re human remains were recovered. And um, the CIA officials anticipated this um, in part because State Department diplomats had raised, had flagged the possibility early on and wanted, everyone wanted to make sure that if human remains were discovered, that they would be um, treated uh, respectfully and, um, and according to um, Soviet customs as Americans understood them. So there were... Um, there was a uh, burial at sea um, uh, that was occurred aboard, aboard the Explorer that was um, videotaped uh, and done so in case Soviet officials asked so that a, American officials could demonstrate that Soviet remains were handled respectfully and in accordance with international law. Um, and so, yes, human remains were discovered and uh, they were buried at sea. Now, what exactly intelligence uh, was gathered from the remains of the k-129 that uh, was actually recovered or did it match up to the anticipation or was there were they underwhelmed um so another issue that remained officially classified um and probably will be for uh, the foreseeable future the best all we can do is to point to the most authoritative sources that we have um which to include then CIA Director William Colby's memoirs uh, that were published some years later. The French version, <laughs> the French version of Colby's memoirs included a description of the Glomar Explorer's Hall that differed from the American version of the memoirs. Uh, the presumption is that the French version was published. Um, beyond the reach of CIA censors, but that's a presumption on my part. But uh, the French version of Colby's memoirs say that the, um, essentially say that the Glomar Explorer recovered a portion of the sub, but not the portion that the U.S. officials wanted. Um, so that that's what we know, um, which led to then 
a follow-on operation in 1975, a planned operation to go back and try to recover what they didn't get the first time. Um, but exactly what U.S. officials got, how much of the target they retrieved, uh, that remains classified. All we can really do is point to Colby's memoirs and then the fact that a follow-on operation, a follow-on operation existed um, that may they, that may be telling. But I think this answer to your second question is that the results were underwhelming, uh, hence the second mission. So some materials were retrieved, but not everything that U.S. officials hoped for. And I think the most charitable um, kind of description one can say is it was a partial success. Some materials were were recovered, but not everything they hoped for. But that's not that's not necessarily, you know, a criticism. It's just a statement of fact. And the, the level of sophistication and ambition um, displayed in in developing the ability to recover a Soviet sub that the Soviets themselves couldn't even locate is really quite astounding. Now, what was kind of the reaction to? the Glomar mission, both in America and then also especially the Soviets. Uh, Mm -hmm. You could start with the Americans first and then we can get to the Soviet reaction. Yeah, sure. Um, Do you mean the reaction among, say, the American public or U.S. officials or? Uh, Yeah, both. uh, Both the public and the officials. Sure. I think so from an official standpoint, I was uh, an effort. The first question was, hey, what went wrong? Uh, what happened? And can we go back again to get the other stuff that we didn't get the first time? That's that's the reaction. And and that's a whole story in and of itself. Um, that process, though, was interrupted by the fact that the mission was prematurely disclosed uh, in the press in early 1975. And I won't bore you or your listeners with the whole details other than to say this. <laughs> that the reason that the mission was disclosed by the press had to do with drumroll, a burglary that happened, um, that occurred at a Hughes-owned facility in Los Angeles in the summer of 1974, just as the Glomar Explorer was leaving port. Um, The investigation into that burglary, a super long story short, led to um, the disclosure of the sub-raising mission by the Los Angeles Times in February 1975, and then a larger national disclosure in, in March 1975. And at that point, the public reaction is mixed. Um, keep in mind, the this is 1975, the so-called year of intelligence, of intelligence is in full bloom at this point. There are media disclosures. Congress is investigating the a famous church committee has been formed, is actively investigating in the Senate. The situation has is totally different, 180 degrees different uh, from what it had been in 1968. The agency feels under siege. Um, and the disclosure of a, uh, a very, very expensive, and um, the U.S. economy is in the tank, too, I should mention, a very, very expensive intelligence operation to recover what critics um, said was an archaic Soviet sub, vintage 1950s. um, And that really only resulted in the recovery of of Soviet, some dead Soviet bodies. 
that this was a, a seemed to be another example pointing to um, CIA incompetence. And there were a number of critics um, of the operation and of the intelligence community at large on that basis. But surprisingly, at least in my view, was that many people took the exact opposite take from this, which was that to really praise the agency for the level of imaginative imagination, of innovation, of ambition, of audacity, as you said, displayed to, to do and to partially succeed in doing what was thought to be impossible, recover a sub from three miles down. That was military, was, was in a military grade um, target that was valuable from a US national intelligence perspective. And I think that there was, and this is kind of my reading of the situation, that this was something that um, it was a, a story that as Vietnam, as, as, as Saigon was falling, this is March 1975, as Saigon is falling, Vietnam is, is drawing to a close. The failed war in Vietnam, um, Watergate has happened, a series of national defeats that um, this is something that many supporters of the agency could point to as uh, that was successful. You could criticize the operation on, on its grounds of cost, on whether it succeeded or not, but you couldn't criticize the, you could not criticize the basis of the operation itself. This wasn't an assassination plot. This wasn't a domestic spying ring. This was a clandestine intelligence collection operation whose purpose was to collect military-grade intelligence on America's foremost Cold War ally, or excuse me, um, opponent, the Soviet Union. You couldn't, um, you couldn't assail it on, on those grounds. And so from that perspective, you could trace, and I, I argue in the book that this, the disclosure of this project starts to really rehabilitate, or at least to burnish a little bit, the CIA's reputation, or to stop the bleeding, if you want to say that, and um, helps the agency to survive um, the year of intelligence in 1975. Now, what do we know of the Soviet reaction? How did they uh, react to one of their subs being essentially partially recovered by their main geopolitical opponent? That's a great question. I, I look forward to, to that book on um, the, the Soviet history of the Glomar mission. I will, I will read that enthusiastically. So that chapter has yet to be written in full. However, uh, what we do know is that this was an embarrassing episode from the perspective of Soviet intelligence, and it's not hard to understand why. Um, the Americans have been able to develop the technology to recover a submarine that the Soviets could not even find. And that was why the operation took place in the first place. When the sub went down, we might ask, how do the Americans even find out? Well, they observed visually the massive Soviet search and rescue operation that took place. It involved dozens of Soviet ships, I'm talking back in 1968 now, and Soviet aircraft. They couldn't find the ship. They couldn't find a downed submarine, but the Americans, through superior technology, could not only locate it, but pinpoint it at an exact geographic coordinate. 
and it could therefore photograph the sub three miles down and develop, develop the hardware to partially recover it. So it was an embarrassment. And the Soviets, although they had been tipped and knew some things about it, had the Soviet intelligence had come to the conclusion, had dismissed the reports, right? Disbelieving that it was possible. And so here you get these news reports um, and they were verified that the Americans had done it. So this was a really embarrassing chapter for Soviet intelligence. Um, and I'm sure there were consequences to that failure. Again, that but that story has yet to be written. From a diplomatic perspective, what the uh, Soviet officials wanted was the story to go away. And uh, what happened was after some time, uh, Soviet Ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin uh, went to the State Department uh, and had asked for a meeting with Henry Kissinger in which he officially objected to the uh, crucial phrase, news reports of this American operation and demanded that if true, they stop, uh, which gave the wording of it gave both sides some wiggle room. And it was at that point uh, that U.S. efforts to um, pursue a follow-on mission to recover what they had, hadn't gained in the first place stopped. And those efforts had continued. There was a serious effort uh, to go back. But once the Soviets flagged that they knew about it, that they took the news report seriously and um, raised uh, official objection to them through private channels, though, didn't make a public issue of it, but through private channels indicated that they just wanted the story to go away. Uh, and that second thing, when they stationed ships at the target site, not, not on a rotating basis, but continuously, if one ship left, another one replaced it at the target site, uh, and officials, U.S. officials observed that, they knew the Soviets meant business. And to go back and to still attempt a recovery, that that would be very provocative. So that's the Soviet reaction. So out of the Glomar mission comes the famous Glomar phrase, that is, we can neither confirm nor deny we did this. Where did this originate in the context of the Glomar mission? Uh, is this the first time that that phrase was used? Yeah, what is, this is uh, such a great question, and I'll just say that to me, this is this is the most durable legacy of the Glomar mission, and I don't even think it's close, is the so-called Glomar response. We can neither confirm nor deny that such and such exists. And even if it did exist, we couldn't verify it because to do so would to um, would to possibly disclose classified information. That's the Glomar response. And that's the most durable legacy of the Glomar operation. And it's easy to see why it's become cliche today, <laughs> that response. I can neither confirm nor deny. Um, but the U.S. government has employed it repeatedly to keep information um, secret. And um, so that's, I think that's the most durable legacy. Had had it had such non-denial denials, it, did they exist before 1975? Yes. Um, you can go back and, and see that an example here, uh, where back in the 1950s, the Eisenhower administration, uh, when asked about the presence of American nuclear weapons in 
a certain country had issued a, a had official responses. We can neither we cannot confirm or deny those reports. So there were antecedents, but it's really the development of the Glomar response. In 1975, where they take off and become part of become part of our common culture, and they, it originates in two ways. One is a diplomatic channel. So, in response to um, Ambassador Dobrynin's objections, um, Henry Kissinger responds, "Well, we can uh, neither confirm nor deny that this operation has taken place." And so that's that's it's kind of domestic, or excuse me, diplomatic origin. But in a legal sense, and I think that's the more important one. In a legal sense, this is the first example that I'm able to point to of a um, of an NCND response, neither confirm nor deny, in a legal setting. And here's what happens. In brief, in um, in 1974, a journalist had issued or, or filed a for freedom of information request for information about the Glomar mission, which had been disclosed in 1974. In response to that FOIA request, which the FOIA had been strengthened considerably in 1974, a CIA lawyer who I had the um, opportunity to speak with at length for this project, I worked in the CIA's general Office of General Counsel, uh, who had been a veteran, had particip participated on the Glomar project himself, um, developed uh, the neither confirm nor deny response to that. The thinking was that couldn't deny that records existed. As I mentioned earlier, some 128,000 files are known to exist or were known at the time. Couldn't lie. Um, that could be legally, um, would put himself in legal jeopardy, could have had to issue a good faith uh, response, but couldn't disclose that these records exist because for reasons X, Y, and Z. They were classified and Glomar, although disclosed, was still technically an ongoing intelligence operation. So the response was, we can neither confirm nor deny your request for information. And that NCND response, as a kind of document in the uh, conclusion, I won't bore you with it, but has really uh, played a key role in um, maintaining, uh, keeping records out of the public eye. Now, what was kind of the impact of the Glomar mission on the Cold War as a whole and uh, Soviet-American uh, relations? We just discussed the immediate Soviet reaction, but what was kind of the long-term impact on the Cold War and the relationship between the two Cold War adversaries? Yeah, I think that um, not as much as one might expect, to be honest. And it had to do with the fact that both sides wanted to keep it secret. So um, Kissinger kind of does this, we can neither confirm nor deny thing. The uh, the Brennan signals, they want to keep it in the private channel, which was the back channel between Kissinger and Dobrynin. So both sides just want us, the story to go away. And the, the best comparison is the U-2, right? Uh, which, and by the way, many people liken Glomar to an underwater version of the U-2, um, in terms of its kind of technological audacity, but you and your, your, your listeners know that when the U-2 uh, was disclosed in, the 19, in 1960, that that ended up uh, torpedoing um, a summit between Eisenhower and Kissinger and really ruined um, a moment of detente in, in Soviet-American relations. But here, 
because um, all of the Glomar uh, operation was disclosed. Both sides allowed the uh, both sides wanted to go away. The Americans tried to allow the Soviets to save face, in part because of the Glomar response. And so, uh, as William Colby pointed out himself, one of the big takeaways of this was that it did not result in an international blow up whereas the U2 had. So from a diplomatic perspective, that's one of the big lessons, uh, big takeaways um, from this is kind of in crisis management. Um, the, but the other big impact, as I say, has to do with the Glomar response. And um, to me, that's the big impact is that it really solidifies the U.S. government, the U.S. intelligence community's ability to keep what it defines as national security secrets secret at a moment, 1975, when that seemed anything but likely. So really key to helping, uh, to shielding the CIA from transparency, um, the subtitle of the book, and allowing it um, to continue uh, from the perspective of CIA supporters to do the important work that it needed to do. So it no longer, so the CIA no longer enjoyed that de facto immunity from its golden age but now this allows it to transit transition into i guess what we could call like a silver age where <laughs> they come under greater public scrutiny but they're still able to kind of at least keep the the real secret stuff secret but you know but they also recognize a lot of details are going to come out anyways eventually yeah, I think that's exactly right. So it allows them to survive the crisis. Again, I think it's a, a, a an issue, case study of crisis management, survive the crisis and move on. And the Glomar response is uh, really crucial to that. Um, and it, it's, it, I think it's important to note that, you know, so many were calling, many critics were calling for the um, kind of dissolution of the CIA in 74 and 75, and not just because of Glomar, but uh, the assassination of, of Richard Welch, um, the chief of station in Athens, and a whole bunch of other um, episodes. The agency emerges uh, at the end of 1975 in a much better position than one would have thought uh, entering that year. This has been a very interesting discussion. Do you have any final thoughts maybe touch on anything in the book that we weren't able to get to in the interview well i think it's been a great conversation i don't have any final thoughts i really think we've covered the waterfront but i've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, and i enjoyed writing this book this has been a labor of love for sure well we always like to end our interviews by asking our guests what are you working on now yeah, thanks. Um, I don't have, I've got several projects in mind. I haven't uh, decided on one yet, but I, I certainly will continue on this path of, of studying U.S. intelligence, um, transparency, and the right to know. Uh, I think that this is uh, kind of an understudied aspect of, of U.S. foreign relations, and so I intend to continue that, that pursuit moving forward. Well, maybe when you finish some of that work, we could have you back on the podcast. I would love that. I've really enjoyed enjoyed my time. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yes, yeah, sure. No thing. Uh, no problem. Uh, M. Todd Bennett, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Right. Thank you again. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.